welcome to the CLB Forge podcast, brought to you by CLB North American Mission. This is a show to help equip you and your church for mission, ministry, and multiplying disciples. Welcome in. This past June, the CLB hosted its biennial convention, and during the convention, there were a number of seminars that tied into our podcast focus on mission engagement, ministry leadership, and multiplying disciples. Today, we're excited to share one of those seminars with you. Please remember that the seminars reflect the views and opinions of the individual or the individuals who are speaking. We hope that you enjoy the show. Welcome to this session. It's, um, it's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, but, I, but I'm, I'm really trying to frame it more as a case study, a case study in one of the core values for the Lutheran Brethren, uh, partnering in mission. Uh, we sometimes have a, very, a tunnel vision, thinking of mission as this is something that the LB is doing, or this is something that the Hashes are doing, or uh, mission is something that God is doing. And, uh, and God is involving us. We are actually partnering with God in mission. And uh, looking at LB involvement in uh, the, the largest country of the world, uh, China, w- over the last 120 years will just, I think, give us a little, uh, little bit of uh, understanding of how God works through his people, uh, regardless of the label that we, uh, the denominational names and, and things, uh, and sometimes even the theologies, if I dare say that. I'm not officially part of the seminary yet, so I can, I can say that. So um, 120 years in China. Well, um, some of you may have come across a certain book at some point called 40 Years in China. Anybody, anybody see or read this? Oh, I think. At least half of the people in the room have. I remember reading this as a, as a kid growing up at Bethel Church here in Fergus Falls, being fascinated about it. Bandits, kidnapping missionaries, and bombs dropping on mission stations. And, uh, this was written by the first missionary ever sent out by the Lutheran Brethren. Uh, her name was Julene Keelan. She and her husband, Reinhold, were the first missionaries called and sent by the Lutheran Brethren. So she wrote this after 40 years of mission work in China. And um, I'm continuing the story. I'm gonna bring it up to, uh, to the present, which is 120 years, exactly 120 years since uh, the Keelans first arrived in China in 1902. Now to understand this story, we actually have to go back a little before that. We have to go back to 1900. Um, for those of you who know the history of the Lutheran Brethren, something very significant happened in December of 1900, but something equally significant happened in the summer of 1900. Something called the, um, the Boxer Rebellion. It was an uprising, it was an anti-foreigner, anti-Christian uprising that was taking place in China in 1900. And uh, it was a very violent uprising um, many missionary, uh, missionaries, missionary children, entire families, and a lot of Chinese Christians were massacred in that uh, uprising. Uh, and, I better put my glasses on. 136 Protestant missionaries uh, and 53 children, 47 Catholic priests and nuns, 30,000 Chinese Catholics, 2,000 Chinese Protestants, 200 to 400 Russian Orthodox Christians. It was a terrible, a terrible slaughter that was going on that whole spring and summer. And the news of that was being broadcast all over the world. Uh, Eventually, the uprising was put down when uh, eight different nations sent their armies into China to put it down. The United States was one of them. There were seven other nations. Um, and, uh, and it really shocked the rest of the world, uh, what was going on. Um, and so when, when those representatives from five small Norwegian immigrant churches, small churches in the upper Midwest, uh, 
came together in Milwaukee in December of 1900, this was on their minds. This was on their hearts. And this was actually one of the reasons why they came together. What can one little Norwegian immigrant church do in the face of what had just happened in China? Not much. But what if five immigrant churches decide to band together in a brotherhood, in a Lutheran brotherhood? <laughs> they can do a little bit more. They, uh, as you know, they made the decision to create a new denomination. They called it the Church of the Lutheran Brethren. It had a nicer sounding name in Norwegian than it does in English. Um, and I think they did that on something like a, a Saturday night or a Sunday night. And then, you know what they did two days later? Two days later, they chose their first mission field and they commissioned their first missionary couple. They weren't even married yet. Their first missionary couple to go to China. They chose China. Why did they choose China? Because churches all over the world wanted to replace the missionaries that had been killed. And the Lutheran brethren was birthed with that type of a, of a heart and a yearning and a longing to replace the missionaries that had been killed just months before in China. And Julian and Reinhold Keeling were the first uh, called. So right from the very start, the Church of the Lutheran Brethren, Brethren as a denomination had a mission board. Uh, I don't have a picture of the first mission board. This is the mission board from 1913-1914. You would recognize some of those names. Gunhus, Broen, um, Peterson, Tungseth. Some familiar names that go back in the LB uh, and are still around today. But the Lutheran Brethren has almost been described, I've heard, as really, um, really a nationwide mission agency to gather resources and send them out to evangelize uh, in the rest of the world. And they certainly uh, showed that. Uh, as soon as the Lutheran Brethren was formed, the first thing they did was choose a, a, a mission field. Well, China's a big place, and uh, the Lutheran Brethren obviously had no history. And when the Keelans were sent to China, where did they go? They went to the place where the other Norwegian-speaking missionaries were, because those were the ones that could help them find their way. And a lot of Norwegians were in this little red dot area there, right between two provinces called Henan and uh, Hubei province right there in the breadbasket. It's an agricultural area in central China. That's where they went because that's where their friends were. Uh, they weren't Lutheran brethren. They were uh, other Norwegian Lutheran and, and other Lutheran groups. Um, but they stayed with them. And while they were staying with them, they got, they got advice as to where no missionaries were working in that part of China. And they surveyed the area and they chose their first mission station. It was going to be a station, a field right next to where the Norwegian Lutheran mission was working and next to where some American Lutheran missionaries were working on the other side of the field. Um, from 1902 to 1949, the Lutheran brethren worked in that small little area in the breadbasket of China, right on the border between uh, Henan and Hubei provinces. How big is that area? Just, uh, I mean, you say small area, so how big is that area? Uh, it might be, um, it might be like uh, the northwest corner of Minnesota or something like that. It's not a very large geographic area. You can, you can travel by ox cart from one of the stations to the other, usually within a day or two. Um, most they had four main mission stations, and they were they were usually about a day's walk apart, so maybe two. Um, and that's what they that's what they did. They started uh, with one mission station, eventually expanded to uh, four different mission stations, um, all in those two in that little area on the border between Henan and Hubei provinces in uh, central China. This is astonishing. Lutheran Brethren, formed in 1902, they sent out 34 missionaries uh, 
between, formed in 1900, but they sent out 34 missionaries, adult missionaries, to China between 1902 and 1949. For the size of the denomination, that was just astonishing. Uh, I don't think the Lutheran Brethren uh, has sent out that many missionaries again in such a concentrated period of time, even though it was much smaller at that time than it is today. Uh, by the time World War II uh, came along and um, Julian Keelan had to leave, a lot of the missionaries had to leave in World War II, uh, Julian Keelan reported there were over 1,000 baptized believers in, uh, in those four mission station areas in that part of central China and outstations beyond those main areas as well. Um, and then by the, by the end of that time, local pastors, elders, and deacons were being installed to oversee the congregations as well. I'll mention that a little bit as we go along. I just want to talk about one of those, one of those mission stations. Um, in some ways, it was the, uh, the least unlikely. There isn't a single picture in this entire book of this fourth mission station, Tanghe. Tanghe was not started, started by the Lutheran Brethren. It was started by a Norwegian brother and his sister who were independent missionaries, independent Lutheran missionaries who came and started a work in that, uh, that village, small agricultural village of Tanghe. Um, the, uh, the work was, uh, was willed to Lutheran Brethren missionaries when Reverend Ian uh, Bowen, who was the founding uh, missionary, died. He called one of the Lutheran Brethren missionaries, Miss Carolyn Udall, to come and be with him while he was dying, and he willed his work to the Lutheran Brethren at that time. So the Lutheran Brethren inherited this station from uh, a fellow missionary who did not belong to any sending agency there in Tanghe. And that happened in 1928, after the Lutheran Brethren had been there for 24 years um, already. Uh, these are just a few of the, uh, a few of the uh, Lutheran Brethren missionaries who were stationed there in Tanghe, Miss Carolyn Udall was joined by the PM Valders, for those of you who know the Valder family. Uh, one of the things they did was start uh, boys' school. Education was always important in mission work. Um, you start with the children, just like Greg Anderson was saying, saying today, you start when they're young, and then when they grow up, they will become the next generation of leaders. That's what they did uh, in starting that mission school. Um, then, uh, 1931 also, there was a great famine in China, or a flood that led to a great famine. You can, you can find pictures of it on the, on the internet still. The, the, great, uh, the great flood of 1931, um, and uh, it destroyed a lot of the crops, so famine was widespread, and Tanghe was one of the locations that was given money by the Chinese government to do famine relief. And they contacted a lot of new people because of that. 1933. Revival. Revival happened all across that whole part of China. And it started in the most unlikely way. It started with, with two single missionary women, one from Norway called Marie Munson. She worked with the Norwegian Lutheran Mission. Another from, uh, from Denmark, uh, Miss Christensen, no relation, I think, to us, Spelled the same way, uh, with the China Inland Mission. And um, it was astonishing what happened. Um, well, let me just first tell you how it began. It began with Marie Munson. She started meeting with women and, um, and doing work with women. And then suddenly the women began falling under conviction and they began confessing the sin of infanticide. When there is famine, the traditional way to deal with that in China was to kill your children, particularly your newborns. As soon as they are born, you throw them in the river. You could tell what the conditions were like in the, in the countryside by how many dead bodies of infant children there were in the rivers. Famine had just happened two years before, and now these women are confessing the sin 
of killing their own, own children. And from there, they heard the gospel. They received the gospel. They shared it with their husbands. They heard the gospel. They received the gospel. And some of them became the evangelists to spread this revival across all of central China. It was an astonishing season. The revival, they say, lasted all the way up until 1937 when the Japanese invaded China in 1937, the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War. In 1937, the Tonghu Mission Station was bombed by Japanese bombers and destroyed. So just as this revival is beginning to impact the whole area, war comes in and, and interrupts it. Um, one other significant thing, remember the Sino-Japanese War started in 37, but it went all the way through World War II until 1945. It was a very difficult time. One, one family, the Naihuses, had a bomb drop, drop directly on the bomb shelter they had built on their mission station. It killed one of their daughters, Phoebe, uh, ser seriously injured another daughter and Mrs. Naihus. So there were costly, there was a high cost to stay in China at that time. And yet the missionaries stayed largely through the Japanese and world, uh, the Sino-Japanese and the World War uh, in order to continue to reap a harvest. But one very significant thing happened. 1944, Elliot Andal, this was right before all of the missionaries had to be evacuated out because it became even more dangerous right at the end of the war. He goes to Tanghe and he ordains evangelist Gu Xiaopei to become pastor in Tanghe with responsibility for all of the other work in the province of Henan. This is the first pastor now that has been ordained of all the Chinese believers. And it's the beginning of handing over the work to Chinese believers because the missionaries knew they would not be able to stay there. Uh, they were going to have to evacuate. What they didn't know was that the end of World War II would not be the end of war. The end of World War II led directly to another war, the Chinese Communist Revolution. It had been ticking along for decades at this point, and it broke out into the open in 1945. By 1949, um, that war would be over. December 1st, 1948, the last Lutheran Brethren missionary evacuated from the country. It was um, P.M. Valder, and um, he uh, boarded a ship in Shanghai and sailed to the U.S. And from that time, December 1948, until 1998, December 1998, no Lutheran Brethren missionaries were stationed in China, 50 years of absence. Um, I think you know 1949, October 1st is actually the date that uh, China celebrates as its Liberation Day, what they call it. But there was another government there. There was the Nationalist government. And as the Communists were taking over the rest of the country, the Nationalist government uh, be, was pushed further and further toward the coast and eventually evacuated to the small little island of Taiwan that some of us just heard about from Ben uh, in his presentation in the last hour. 600,000 soldiers evacuated to Taiwan, one million civilians during that time. Um, one of the Yomi missionary fa families, they didn't go directly to ta Taiwan, but they ended up coming to Taiwan when they found out they couldn't return to China. That was the Naihuses who had lost their little daughter Phoebe in the bombing. They decided to go to Taiwan and they were the first Lutheran Brethren missionaries to, uh, to begin mission work among the Chinese in that particular province of China. Um, I'm not going to, to go through the whole history of what happened in Taiwan. Um, just a, a, a few comments. Um, the Lutheran brethren had been praying that God would open the door to China again at that time. Uh, the door to China didn't open, but the door to Taiwan did open. And a number of missionaries, you can see them here, the, um, the Naihuses and Miss Udo, uh, Carolyn Udo, who had been stationed in Tanghe, um, 
Elliot and Ruth, and Ruth Ondel, who had also been stationed in Tanghe, went to Taiwan. Peter and Olga Valder, who had also been stationed in Tanghe, went to Taiwan. All of those working in that, in that one station in Tanghe ended up reuniting in Taiwan and continuing on mission work there. Uh, the Taiwan Lutheran Brethren Synod was established in 1957, and um, China Lutheran Seminary was established in 1966, which, carrying out this theme of partnering and mission, it was a partnership between four different Lutheran denominations on the island. Church of the Lutheran Brethren, uh, the Norwegian Lutheran Mission, the Lutheran Free Church of Norway, and the Finnish Lutheran Church. Together they formed this seminary, which still is training, uh, training Chinese pastors in Taiwan today. Uh, during that time in Taiwan, we ended up sending quite a few number of uh, families. Uh, the Christoffersons, um, Ethan and Sandy are here. Uh, the Backchilders, my wife is here. Uh, the Falters, the Thorsons, Nordfits, and I think they're represented here too. Kittlesons, Larsons, Hoshes, Christoffersons. I've got Christofferson's twice there. Um, and as Ben mentioned in our last presentation, Lutheran Brethren Church in Taiwan has now begun sending out its, its first missionary families to be involved in Lutheran Brethren mission work outside of Taiwan. They sent them to Chad. I had a, an opportunity to meet, um, meet the Wun family in Chad just back in January, a delightful couple. And their three children are adorable. And they're also Tiaopi, for those of you who know what that means. Uh, mischievous. <laughs> so, uh, 1995. Uh, China has begun opening up by this point. And in 1995, uh, uh, LBIM, or Lutheran Brethren World Missions, decided to send a small team back into that part of China where the old Lutheran Brethren mission field had been to find out what had happened. There had been virtually no communication or contact with uh, that part of China for, at this time, over 40 years. Um, I don't know if you can recognize Jim Wardall here. Uh, Joel Nordfit was on the team, I was on the team, and um, also a pastor, the, the president of the synod in, uh, in Taiwan, of the, Lutheran Brethren Synod in Taiwan. He was born in Henan, so he was going back to his home, his hometown when the four of us went. Uh, and we went into the old uh, mission field area, and um, it was fascinating. It's, it's still a very rural area. Um, the harvest was going on, which was really good, because they said, oh, it'll be safer to drive because the bandits are all busy doing the harvest, so they won't have time to, to stop and rob you. <laughs> so that's what we were told, and we picked the right time to go. <laughs> and um, probably the highlight, I think, was, was meeting um, a dear old sister in, uh, in a small town called Pingshur, just outside of a small town called Pingshur, um, who remember the Nihuses. And she could tell us the story. I mean, this has been 40, you know, 47 years since the Nihuses left. Actually, it had been longer since the Nihuses left than that. And she remembered the Nihuses and could share about how she had been a believer all her life because of the gospel that was brought to them when she was just a girl. It was a thrilling uh, experience. We went, to, uh, we went to one village. We knew there had been 400 baptized believers in that village. Uh, we wanted to find out what it was like today. We met with the, the church. There was still a uh, church pastor we could meet. He said there are now 10,000 baptized believers in this area that they are responsible for. The 400 that were left had become 10,000. And we found that story again and again. The one place we were not able to go to that we wanted to was Tanghe. We were not allowed to go to Tanghe because so much was happening with the gospel there that the police were very concerned about social stability. 
So they would not allow us to go on to, to visit the old work, uh, the place where, where the work had been done in Tanghe. But we did get to, uh, we did get to go to um, Tongbai and, and Pingshu, which we saw two out of the four mission stations that were there. Well, after that, um, after that exploratory trip uh, was completed and we brought our report back to the, uh, the World Mission Board, the decision was made um, to send, uh, to basically to send missionaries back into mainland China. And uh, the Mission Board approached um, me and, and my wife Liz to ask if we would be the first missionaries to go back. And um, I didn't want to go. <laughs> I wanted to go to Mongolia, but, but uh, you know, I wanted to go to a small place where we can really make a difference, so God sent me to the biggest place in the world. Um, but it was clear that that was the Lord's call, and, um, and we, uh, after, after prayer, uh, Liz and I both uh, were, ready, were ready to go. We were sent in 1998, commissioned and sent in 1998. Now, because the Lutheran Brethren had no structure there, no one uh, had been there for 50 years at that point, um, we, we were looking for a way to be sent that uh, would still support us. And uh, the decision was made that we would be sent through some other organization that was already working in the country, already had people um, and support structures on the ground inside the country. Uh, and of course, we wanted to go back to, to Hunan, where three of the four mission stations had been. Uh, we found two organizations that, um, that we thought would, would be the best ones to go with. Um, one was an all-American organization, sent American missionaries. The other was an international mission started by Hudson Taylor. Uh, for those of you who recognize that name, China Inland Mission, which is today the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. They just call themselves OMF now. Uh, so the decision was made after we looked at that, that uh, Liz and I looked at it and we thought, you know what? We'd rather be with an international mission organization than just with Americans. No offense, but um, <laughs> because of the whole concept of working together, it's so important to us. It's really important to me the whole idea of partnering in mission. And this would allow us to partner with, with brothers and sisters from dozens of countries that, uh, and, and dozens of church backgrounds even that the Lord was working with and calling to, um, to come together as co-workers on the ground and, and work together for his glory, even though we come from different cultural and theological backgrounds. So we joined uh, OMF International. Uh, this is the, um, the, the graduating class uh, for, from our orientation. Uh, and it, it took place in Singapore, in 19, summer of 1998. Uh, this is the, the uh, international headquarters of, of OMF. And then you can see there's that, that little American family there <laughs> with two little boys. Um, and the Lord gave us a, a third little boy on our first home assignment. What kind of work have we been involved in? Um, let me just give you a little summary, and, uh, and then I want to make sure we leave time for questions. Um, I have a, well, <laughs> this kind of goes back to the Taiwan part. I was actually called by the Lutheran Brethren to go to Taiwan in uh, 1986 when I graduated from seminary, and I went. And I learned Hakka, and I worked there for a year and a half with Joel and Mary Beth Nordfit um, in their Hakka church planting ministry. Um, and it certainly uh, confirmed the calling that the Lord had given to me. I wasn't married yet, although I got to know my future in-laws really well that year, Chuck and Ravella Batchelder. Um, and um, I just had a sense coming off of that year that... Um, there are a lot of missionaries in Taiwan, and there are some other places where there are very few. And the reason there are very few is because it's very hard to get into those places. And generally, you're not going to get into those places with a missionary visa. You're going to get into those places some other way. 
you, you have to have something else that the country sees as valuable so that they will give you a visa to live there and to live there long term. And for me, that meant I'm probably going to need another degree besides an MDiv from Lutheran Brethren Seminary in order to get into a place like that. So I've always loved literature. It was not hard for me to go back to uh, grad school to get a graduate degree in literature so that we would have uh, access to countries that were closed to traditional mission work. I wasn't thinking of China at that time. I was thinking of Mongolia. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I was able to finish, um, finish my graduate work in uh, English, a PhD, in, uh, at the end of 1997. And then by the middle of 1998, June of 1998, um, we were on our way to, uh, to Asia. Uh, I was involved in, in campus ministry. Well, I should really say we. We were involved in campus ministry. Uh, for our first nine years in China. Uh, and it wasn't, just, it wasn't just what I was doing in the classroom. Um, equally important was what we were doing in our home. We lived right on campus. Students had easy access to our place. We had students in the home all the time. This is a group of my graduate students. Uh, we would have undergraduates come over. We'd show a movie. We'd talk about it. We'd show a Francis Schaeffer series, How Should We Then Live, and get them into... The, we did all sorts of things in the home. It was delightful. And that way our whole family could be involved. Liz got to know the uh, students as well as me. And they loved our children. They really did. And our children loved them. Um, that's uh, one of the areas we worked in. I was also uh, able to be involved in, in seminary education, seminary training. This is, I guess you'd call it a house church seminary. It was not registered. Um, the, uh, the director of the seminary would only let me teach in the middle of the winter. Do you know why? Because in the middle of the winter, everybody puts big jackets on and you know, covers up. So I, had to, you know, I could only go in and teach there at a time of the year when I had a big jacket on and a scarf over my face. And, I didn't put sunglasses on, but, <laughs> but he, did, he did make sure I had to go in while it was still dark and could not come out until after the sun had gone down again. Um, and I had the privilege of teaching a, a course on Galatians, the freedom of Christ in Galatians uh, a number of time, times to young people that were training to, um, some of them training to be missionaries. Uh, it was delightful to be involved in that. Uh, Liz has a, a degree in occupational therapy. She's always had a heart for kids with disabilities. And right from the start, we started to get involved, or she started to get involved along our, with Liz, our kids, in disability ministries. She has continued to be involved in disability ministries in China right up to the present day. She even does Zoom trainings back in China. She's been doing that in the last couple of years while we have not been able to live in China. Uh, we did a lot of mentoring of new believers. Um, and uh, that was thrilling. Uh, some of those women that uh, you can see there in the Bible study with Liz have started ministries of their own that are just having profound impact. Um, they've grown up in Christ and it's so, so thrilling to see what God has done. This is a young man here. Um, I think it was my first year teaching. I'm, I'm walking through the hallway after class, and this, this, this young guy comes up, the student comes up, and he hands me a piece of paper, and then he walks away. <laughs> um, he introduced himself, his name, and he said, um, he said, I'm a Christian, and I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking for someone to mentor me. And uh, I had the privilege of being able to connect with him. Um, he changed his, he chose his, for his English name, it was Coleman, he changed it to Paul um, because of the example of Paul in the Gospels afterwards. This, um, this is Paul and two other students uh, when they were baptized into Christ. And uh, they are receiving communion for the very first time. The communion is being uh, given to them 
by uh, a local house church leader, a pastor and a, well, uh, an elder and his wife. This is the wife. And whenever they, whenever they do communion, they always kneel. And they always, they always pass out the elements on their knees. Um, uh, have any of you read the book Heavenly Man? Yeah, some of you had. Okay. Um, there's a place, a very dramatic moment in the Heavenly Man when the prison door opens up and he just walks out and nobody sees him. And he goes, he goes, he knows that there's, there's a brother uh, who lives nearby with three, with three daughters. Well, this is, this is the brother's wife that, uh, that uh, gave him shelter when he walked out of that prison. So uh, it is in, it's in the same province, in the same town, in the same city that we were living in at that time. Um, for about 10 years, the Lord, uh, the Lord called us out of Henan to another part of China to be uh, involved in, in leading a mission network. Um, and, uh, and I was the, uh, the executive director of that network for about 10 years. Once again, the partnering was just beautiful. We had uh, co-workers from over 20 countries. Uh, we had about 14 or 15 mission organizations that were uh, recruiting, uh, uh, rec recruiting missionaries from their, uh, their countries to be involved in this particular mission network. And, um, and I, again, I, I think we learned more about, about, about what the body of Christ was always meant to look like by hanging out with people who were really different than us, who raised their kids differently uh, and disciplined them dis differently, who had different views of the Holy Spirit, who had different, uh, it was, um, I mean, challenging at times, but it was beautiful. It was beautiful to understand um, what the body of Christ will be one day when we are fully, um, fully present as the body um, with the Lord. And um, some of the, the strongest, I, I would say that this experience of being involved in an, an international, um, multicultural, non-denom, or I should say um, interdenominational, there were denominations, interdenominational organization like that, um, has, has given me a sense for what the DNA of the gospel has always been. God never sees our labels. He's colorblind to that. He doesn't see the denominations. All he sees is his children. And he wants his children to be working together. I'm not saying denominations and distinctives are not important. I'm just saying that God is colorblind. He doesn't see, if he doesn't see Jew and Gentile, he certainly doesn't see Lutheran and Baptist. Um, and uh, certainly doesn't see Norwegian and Swedish, you know. Those things just do not, that is not, that, that's not what, uh, that's not what the DNA of the gospel is. The DNA of the gospel has always been working together. And it's not just this kind of work. You know, we go back to Philippians 1. It talks about, you know, I thank my God and every remembrance of you um, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I've been guilty of it. Thousands of missionaries have been guilty of it. Using that to say, thank you for the partnership that you have. That's not what Paul means. That is actually a really poor translation. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not a Greek scholar, but I've looked at it. Paul is talking about, the word is koinonia. Paul is talking about our koinonia in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is thanking God every single day because those Galatian believers, or those Philippian believers, sorry, have koinonia with the triune God. That's what he's talking about. And that's, it is that kind of partnering, that kind of fellowship. I don't even like the word partnering. <laughs> um, it's like the watered down version of marriage. Marriage is a much better word. 
It's marriage in, um, in ministry, marriage in the gospel, because it's marriage with God. And uh, when you've experienced it, you'd never want to go back to anything else. Um, one of the great privileges that, um, that stumbled across, I think the time was right, 2013-2014, uh, um, we, uh, we began just pulling together, because right at that time, the church in China was growing tremendously. There are perhaps 100 million believers in China today. In China today, and the church in China wanted to be, begin uh, becoming an international sending church, not just receiving missionaries, but sending missionaries. Of course, that's what every every maturing church um, should ever ever be aiming for. And um, uh, we we began pulling together just a few of the emerging mission leaders in China for sending from China. Chinese believers, with a few international mission leaders. We started very small, and at the time we started in about 2013, we kind of did a survey. Uh, how many, how many uh, missionaries has, have the churches in China actually sent out? Between all of us, we could only come up with about 200 or 300 missionaries that had been sent out at that point in 2013. And we began to, to talk and pray, well, um, what can we do to help facilitate this movement? Uh, we all started inviting other people to these meetings, these gatherings. And eventually, within two years, we, we had seen the Lord create something that we called the Koinonia community. There's where the Koinonia comes from. That was my suggestion. <laughs> um, which was bringing these, uh, these new mission movement uh, uh, pastors and um, mission directors and some of the missionaries that were just starting to come back and tell their stories to their congregations in China. We started bringing them together with uh, experienced, wise mission leaders from all over the world so that they could share together and learn together and walk together in this emerging mission movement. Um, we didn't have a time, time to do this very long. We had about five years where we could do this before things started to shut down and China started to go after these types of gatherings. This particular gathering that you see there, uh, that took place in Hong Kong. And um, that was probably the last gathering we were able to do in Hong Kong. It would be impossible to do that in Hong Kong today. We tried doing gatherings in Taiwan. It would be impossible to do that in Taiwan today because the reach of the Chinese government is so strong that they will shut down anything that you try to do like this in Taiwan with, with Chinese nationals coming to it. Um, it just couldn't, it couldn't happen today. And of course with COVID it's even more impossible. But we had a window of about five years where the Lord just blessed and flourished this movement. And today, there are tens of thousands of Chinese missionaries all over the world serving in, uh, um, in other unreached people groups. It's absolutely thrilling to see what God is doing. And I, I say this not, not to try to reflect on us. This is what partnership does when God brings his people together to accomplish his purposes. This is what God has done and what God is doing. Um, no human organization could ever take ownership for anything like that. Um, God will oversee it long after we are gone. You know, I haven't been in China now for two and a half years. Um, God never left. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember that? Who was it that said that? Nathaniel, I think? Nathaniel. We have a son named Nathaniel. <laughs> He's a missionary now in uh, Ecuador. Can anything good come out of the, that tiny little red dot that the Lutheran brethren wasn't privileged to be involved in for, you know, from 1902 to 1948, not even 50 years? 
Um, can anything good come out of that? Uh, I, um, I was on a, uh, a webinar just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I took a, took a little screenshot. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. Um, the, the webinar was on um, church planting and multiplication in Asia with a focus on a case study for one particular denomination in China. The denomination is called China Gospel Fellowship. This is one of the leaders of the China Gospel Fellowship that was leading this seminar for mission people from all over the world that were joining it. Um, China Gospel Fellowship has another name. Its local name is Tanghe Fellowship. This is one of the largest Protestant denominations in the world today. It's estimated there are perhaps four million uh, people who have come to Christ through the work of China Gospel Fellowship. China Gospel Fellowship originated in Tanghe. The station that was willed to the Lutheran Brethren in 1928 by an independent Norwegian Lutheran missionary who was dying of illness. And uh, when you think about it, it's just, it's astonishing um, what God has done. The founder of China Gospel Fellowship is... Um, is a man named Shan Yiping. Just put that one up there again. Um, Shan Yiping passed away in 2018. Uh, he was born in Tanghe in 1947, one year before the last Lutheran Brethren missionary left the field. He was very likely baptized by a Lutheran Brethren pastor as an infant and has gone on to, to start um, a denomination that is now not only four million strong in China, but is sending missionaries outside of China as well today. This is a, just a little, like I said, a case study picture of what God can do. If you just kind of take away some of the, some of the barriers and the boundaries, well, he does that, and just see what he'll do with it. See where he'll run with it. See where he'll go with it. The only thing you can do is just praise him. We only know just this much of the story. One day we're going to hear the whole thing. And we will give him the praise and the glory for all that he has done. Well, I think our time is up. Um, I can maybe take one question or comment, but I don't know... Uh, I know I, I'm supposed to be at Bethel at 510, 5.15. So, by the way, is anybody else going to Bethel? I need a ride. <laughs> Can you give me a ride, Sam? Okay, I'll catch a ride. Yeah? Is, is there a place where this is written down, like the historical information? Not from, an, not from a Lutheran Brethren perspective, but uh, you can find a lot of information about the... Um, China Gospel Fellowship, especially in Chinese. <laughs> uh, it's all over the internet. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is just um, from the experience that Liz and I have had and the connections that we have made and just hearing what, Sorry, what's happened. Am I going to finish the book? <laughs> so 120 years. No. So as long as you, re you write the middle chapter, Joel, <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> Joel was on that exploratory trip to, um, to China, to the old China mission field with me in 1995. In fact, he invited me, I think. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> Joel, I was wondering whether you would take a couple of minutes to just uh, share your heart on what it feels like to go away from the work of, what, 23, 24 years in China? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, It's been a long grieving process. We didn't know we were leaving China when we uh, had our carry-on bags and went to Taiwan for a Lutheran Brethren missionary retreat, and then we could never get back into our home, back in 
um, the beginning of 1920, uh, 2020. Huh? So uh, we've been grieving gradually, um, but it's pretty clear the Lord has opened, as he closes one, one door, he opens up another window. And he's done that for us. And we're just thrilled that we can continue to be involved actively in the mission world. Uh, I'll be at the seminary, but, but Liz and I uh, will we'll both be traveling out to Chad for the missionary retreat in October, and we hope to still be actively involved. So we haven't lost ev everything, but, you know, yeah, I kind of feel more like a global Christian now, so yeah. it doesn't matter where I am in the globe. I'm still part of what he's doing, um, even though it's hard to lose that place we loved in China. Well, do you quickly, do you have a sense of, you know, as all this has been happening, you know, Taiwan obviously is being threatened at some point in time. It seems like, I know even Cambodia, uh, Vietnam and Laos, I've heard are, yeah. you know, do you have a sense of uh, how active China's going to be in, you know, Hong Kong's already been kind of yeah. right? Well, probably what's happening in uh, Ukraine is the best measure of what China would do. They've seen how strong the West has been in uh, cutting off Russia, and I don't think China wants to get cut off. So I think that's the best deterrent right now. They can't afford to have the rest of the world cut them off. So for now, I think that's, that's probably the way it is. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of the CLB Forge podcast brought to you by CLB North American Mission. Thanks for listening. We welcome your questions and comments. Email us at podcast at clbforge.org.